After today, we have two more Sundays in the book of Acts. Uh, we will be in chapters 25 and 26 this morning, primarily chapter 26, Paul speaking before King Agrippa. We titled this series back last year when we began on Acts, Empowered Proclamation That Grows the Church, because it, it seems like through Acts over and over again, what we see in this first century and the, the birth and the growth of the church is God over and over again taking his church from a group of 11 disciples and several hundred witnesses to the risen Savior Jesus Christ and taking this, this small group of people and growing his church out of that. If you think about the just the logistics of it, if you will, it, it is a small group of, of Jewish people. They are of an ethnicity that is, is not popular. They are an ethnic minority at that time and, and very unpopular. They are all residents of the region of Judea, which is a very remote part of the, the Roman Empire. It is westernmost part of the empire, almost southwestern corner. And it all begins with this small group of people in an empire that at this point is more than a million square miles in size, has conservative estimates of a population of 60 million, probably more than that. And the core message of this little group of people, under a thousand people, that, that start all this is that there is this rabbi, this preacher, this one who has come from Nazareth, who proclaimed this good news and who died, who was crucified, knowingly, by throughout the Roman Empire, was crucified and has risen and is alive. And he is a king and a lord and savior today. That is, you, you could not concoct a more impossible starting point for the spread of the gospel message. If you had imagined just some small corner of the United States with some small group of unknown people coming up with some supernatural message, and it's spreading, that's, that's what's happening here. That's, that's where we are at the beginning of the book of Acts. That's the, if you will, the odds against this group of people in this remote area. And yet by the end of the book of Acts, we are seeing where thousands of people have come to believe in Jesus Christ. The movement is growing. Many of them now are Gentiles. It's gone well beyond Jewish boundaries. And there are people from Jerusalem to 1,500 miles away to Rome, and they are worshiping Jesus Christ. And it's also worth stating the obvious that this, this incredible growth has nothing to do with force. There's no intimidation in the preaching of the gospel. There's no promise of prosperity. Quite on the contrary, you, you could see it as you watched people who came to faith in Christ that those who followed Jesus frequently are cut off from family members. They are ostracized within their culture. In many cases, they are persecuted and they suffer. And opposition to the gospel is taking place in virtually every city where the gospel has taken root. And so they are a small group preaching throughout this massive empire, and God is growing despite the fact that there are repeated efforts to stamp out this very movement. And here we are today, in the company of millions worldwide, reading God's word, reading of the, the first 30 years, the sacred history of, of the birth and 
growth of the church of Jesus Christ, reading of this same good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, worshiping the same Savior by the power of the same Spirit. We are gathered here as those who are descendants of of those very people whom Jesus first saved in Jerusalem and first began this book of Acts with. And so we're going to be in chapter 25 this morning as we think about this empowered proclamation, because what we're going to read is Paul's last message. We've seen a number of sermons from Paul, a number of him speaking, defending himself. This this is the last one. Chapters 27 and 28 will largely follow his journey and the dangers and hazards that go from getting from Caesarea on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean over to Rome. What's here is really his, at least recorded, his last sort of stand, if you will. There's certainly in New Testament history, we know from Paul's letters that there is more. We know that church history tells us there is more. But as far as what we have in the book of Acts and the record of Paul's sermons, this is it. And what's interesting about this is it's, it's not... It's not some great fanfare. It's not Paul in front of a a large crowd of people who have followed. It is a lowly, rather insignificant man because he has just spent the last two years in confinement in, in Caesarea. Whatever notoriety Paul may have had before that, it is now largely diminished. And he is now this single, solitary man, no representation, in chains, no riches, still loathed by his opponents, by the the Jewish leaders, and he is now standing before the king over that region. This last message will be Paul before King Agrippa. Agrippa is from a long line of kings. We know Agrippa's ancestors. It was his father who ordered the murder of the apostle James in Acts chapter 12. It was his Grandfather, Herod the Great, who orders the killing of the babies in Bethlehem at the time of the birth of Jesus to try to stop the coming of this Jewish king. And this is now Herod Agrippa, who Paul will stand before, who is, who is familiar with the Jews, who is familiar with their practices and their religion and their tradition. And he is also familiar with placating the Jewish people, and we're going to see some of that in this passage. You and I are, will likely never be in this similar kind of position, our, our faith on trial, standing before some godless, powerful ruler. But I I think by listening to what Paul says to King Agrippa, you and I are reminded again of God empowering the proclamation of his truth to accomplish his good work. Just seeing God at work through Paul's single voice, using a humble, faithful servant, and he does that. He did that then, and he continues to do that today. So we're going to read parts of chapter 25, and then we'll go through chapter 26. Just want to hit on six lessons about gospel proclamation. As we watch Paul preach, six, I I doubt any of these are new for you, but just in review, six things that sort of go with proclamation of the gospel in terms of attitude and, and posture as we speak. When we left off at the end of chapter 24, Paul is in prison. He's in Caesarea, coast of the Mediterranean, left there, if you remember, by Governor Felix. Felix was hoping for a bribe. Felix is ultimately removed. Festus is now brought in. And so Paul has not been found to have done anything wrong. There's no guilt. There's been no successful charges. There's been no witnesses, but he has been left in jail all this time. And so now Felix is replaced by a new governor named Festus. So chapter 25, verse 1 Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, 
And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Let's stop there. So Festus becomes governor. One of his first steps as governor, as a guy who is politically shrewd, is to go to Jerusalem. Go and, and, and see the constituency that... that troubled Felix that ultimately caused Felix to lose the governorship. Festus is trying quickly to mend fences, trying to put on a good face, and so he goes up to Jerusalem. It has been two years since Paul was captured and put in prison, and right away the Jewish leaders, what is, what is top on their list of priorities, it is we've, we've got to deal with Paul. They still hate Paul. They are still planning to kill Paul. They are still looking for a way to ambush him. If only they could get him out in the open. Key word in this section is that word favor. It says it in verse 3 that they asked as a favor against Paul that he summons him to Jerusalem. Bring, bring Paul to us and let us just have a hearing when all the while they know that they are planning to kill him. Festus knew it would be unwise to be part of this sort of illegal conspiracy against a Roman citizen. And so he says, no, you, you want to make your case, you come over to Caesarea. That's where Paul is, and you come and make your case there. So in large part, this goes as it had in front of Felix. Jews come, they make their case. As Luke reports, there's no witnesses, there's no proof. It's charges of, of insurrection and troublemaking and, and, and defiling the temple. And Paul ultimately says, I've done nothing wrong and you cannot prove otherwise. Festus, new governor, is now in a bind. He's got this one man, Roman citizen, but still just one guy against this constituency that he very much wants to please and yet this guy has done nothing wrong. And so to try to keep them on his side, he turns around and does the exact thing they asked for in verse 3 that he denied when it comes down to verse 9. And here's this word favor again. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges? That is a loaded question. It is not at all clear what Festus means by, we'll do this trial before me. It's not clear if Festus is implying that I, I ultimately will render a judgment. 
which is troubling because we, we're going to find out as we read on that Festus does not understand Jewish religion and the Jewish law, and so he really doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's troubling because he could also mean, I will sit there and I will watch this, and I'll, I'll just ensure that it's done fairly, but ultimately the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, will decide. And, and certainly we know they're going to bring up some charge of blasphemy, something with which they can then bring Paul back, hand him back to Festus and say, well, now you have to kill him because this is what he's done. If you look down at verse 18 a moment, this is Festus later after the fact. He's writing to Agrippa about this transaction that went on in Caesarea, and we get a little bit of his frame of mind. Verse 18, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and he tried and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Let me stop there. This is Festus. And he is, after the fact, admitting to Agrippa, this guy did nothing wrong. There was no violation of Roman law, but... He didn't dare say that in front of the Jewish leaders in that room. He wasn't going to declare Paul's innocence in front of the very crowd that he's trying to win over. He wasn't going to release Paul as he should have. Instead, he's being tempted by politics at this moment. I mean, we, we, we think that we're in a time of, of difficult politics. This, this is pure political maneuvering for Festus at this point as to what can I do to make this crowd happy to not overstep Roman law and not actually get this guy killed. And so he's, he's wrestling with this and he is being tempted by the pressure to do whatever is needed to make the crowd happy. And we can just go back 30 years to Governor Pilate standing before the crowd and the crowd saying, crucify him. And ultimately Pilate concedes and says his blood is on your hands because he, he just wants to, to give over to the crowd, to, to let the crowd have its way. Festus is ready to offer the favor that he had initially declined. Now, so go back to verse 10, chapter 25, verse 10. He's just asked him, do you wish to be tried in Jerusalem? Verse 10, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Verse 11, when Paul says, if I have not done anything wrong, you can't give me up to them. The verb for you cannot give me up to them is a form of the same Greek word that is used for favor earlier. You, you cannot grace them. To, you cannot do this grace. You cannot do this favor. Essentially, there's Paul saying to Festus, if I've not done anything wrong, you can't use my life as a favor to the Jews. You cannot give me over to them. Paul knew he was innocent. And so did Festus. But politics now is overtaking justice, and Paul saw it. And that's why he uses his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. As one commentator puts it, Paul exercised his right not to be tried before an incompetent tribunal. 
Festus does not know what he's doing. This is beyond him, and, and he is ultimately going to be the one to have to render some kind of judgment. So Paul at this point appeals. There's a second reason why, why Paul appeals to Caesar at this point, not clearly here in the text, but I think we can imply it. To go from Caesarea to Jerusalem is to move back east. It's not only dangerous, Paul has to know that, that he left there in the first place. They took him there in the first place because they were trying to kill him there. And so he's got to know that there's danger there. But this is also a step backward for a guy who spent two years in chains in Caesarea to whom Jesus has said, you shall go to Rome and testify of these things. And this is really the first time Paul has the ability to sort of state his own direction. Paul can, by appealing force the hand of the governor and be sent to Rome. And so Paul takes the opportunity to say, no, move me to Rome. Let me appeal this now before Caesar. And so the rest of chapter 25 is, is taken up with King Agrippa, who's the king over a larger region in this area, um, who now comes and visits Festus, comes to Caesarea, welcomes Festus in as governor and comes for just sort of a diplomatic sort of gathering with him. And, and that leads to this conversation about what to do with Paul. Festus in, in chapter 25, we won't read it all, but essentially, as we've seen with these guys like Felix, they, they take the opportunity to paint themselves in the best of light. I, I wasn't doing anything against Roman law. I was upholding it. I was treating the citizen well and, and doing all the right things. And I, I fully offered Paul a hearing in Jerusalem, and it would have been before me. And he appealed to Caesar. And so we're sending him off to Rome. And Agrippa says, I want to hear from him myself. Look down at verse 23 of, of Acts 25. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. The scene is set. Um, th this is, again, we're just getting sort of Luke's shorthand, but this is all the pageantry of a king holding court. If you watched any of the funeral yesterday and you, of Prince Philip and you know the pageantry that goes around royalty, clearly that's what's happening in this moment. The, the king is sitting. He is with Bernice. That's a whole nother story. Bernice is his sister who also it seems to be his wife. Uh, it, it's complicated. Bernice has had a lot of political maneuvering herself to get to this place. But nonetheless, Paul is brought in. And the thought here is, Agrippa being from the line of Herod, they understand the Jews, they understand a little bit more about Jewish law. Ethnically, they're sort of semi-related to the Jews, and so maybe he can figure this out. And so this is Paul's chance to make his case. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. 
I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Let's stop there. Six lessons about empowered proclamation. As, as we look at Paul's speech, his defense, his sermon, if you will, before Agrippa, six things that I, I think we're seeing Paul do that I, I think we can learn from and apply in our own gospel proclamation. And the first one is identify. From purely legal perspective, Paul is making the case for his Jewishness. He's saying, they, they know my background. They know my life. I am a Jew of Jews. And in fact, I, I am not some rabid opponent to the Jews. I have been one of them since birth. I have followed the customs. I have lived and breathed the Jewish law since childhood. And, and frankly, if you force them to testify, they would have to acknowledge that that's true. He says, as part of that belief, I held to the resurrection. As part of a belief in the law and the prophets, I also saw the, the prophecy, the promise in Ezekiel 37, the, 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 valley, the vision of the valley of dry bones. You know that vision that speaks of dry bones. They are dead and they are lifeless and God breathes into them and they come to life again. And it goes on in Ezekiel chapter 37 and it describes the, the Jewish, the 12 Jewish tribes being reunified in this great resurrection. And so when Paul in verses 6 and 7 says... I am simply proclaiming the very hope of God to the tribes of Israel. He says, I'm, I'm proclaiming what, what the prophet Ezekiel told us to look forward to, which is a resurrection which, which reunifies us and brings us together. It's a resurrection of the dead. Then, though, comes the, the point of divergence on this. They, they agreed on the resurrection, at least the Pharisees did, but then... What Paul does is he now says there's a, there's a central figure in this resurrection. And what he's going to go on in this passage to describe is Jesus of Nazareth. That we believe in the resurrection where we, where we diverge on this is I believe that the cornerstone of the resurrection, the starting point of the resurrection is Jesus. All right, that's, that's what he's doing. But I want to suggest to you in terms of proclamation, one of the things he's also doing is he's identifying with fellow sinners who are in need of God's mercy. He's not in the position of, of preaching down toward his opponents. 
He's very much coming at a, at a position of identifying with them. That these verses, we've, we've had several accounts, starting in Acts 9 with the actual account of, of Paul's salvation on the road to Damascus, and then, of course, he repeats it again. And so we're well-versed in, in some of this, of Paul's background, and, and we know he's a Pharisee. We know he's well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. And yet, what he's explaining here is, I, I had all of this, I had all of this knowledge, I was a legit Pharisee and I followed the law and yet I was spiritually dead and blind and in bondage to sin. I was completely lost. Jesus had died and risen again and I was actively denying it. I was doing what these accusers are doing. As they stand and point the finger at me, I was them 20 years ago, 25 years ago, more than that even, when, when Jesus Christ had risen, I was leading the charge to persecute Christians. I, I would go to the, the chief priest and I would get permission to go after them and arrest them and torture them. Paul said, I opposed Jesus violently. I was a cruel surrogate of this whole Jewish religious system. I, who preach Christ to you now, was so dead in my sin that I was fighting against God. That was where I was. Think back, if you remember, to, to Acts chapter 5, the Jewish leaders, the, the church is, is, is new, and it is growing in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders summon the apostles in, and they begin to threaten them and with persecution. You need to stop preaching Christ. And, and, and it's Gamaliel, who, the, the one Pharisee, who sends the apostles out of the room and says to his colleagues, listen, We've seen a lot of movements before, and they all fade away. If this thing really is of God, we may not only be on the wrong side of things, but we might actually be found to be fighting against God. When Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, that's what he's saying, Paul. You, you are You are not just standing there sort of naively, innocently, neutrally sort of doing nothing. You are actively fighting against me. Goad is like a, a sharp cattle prod. And, and, and Jesus is, is, is describing to Paul how here I am, the risen Savior, and, and I, am, I am drawing you to myself. I am at work in you. I am, you are seeing me. And yet you have been the very one who has just been foolishly, angrily kicking against me, despite all of the truth and all of the evidence that I am risen and I am the Savior, you have been fighting me. By telling this, by re repeating this again, Paul's saying, I, I was exactly where you are now. I, I, I didn't get this by virtue of being some sort of specially super-knowledged Pharisee who figured out the mystery to all of this. I was exactly where you are. We need to remember this in our gospel proclamation. We, we were there where our unbelieving friend or family member is. I, I was lost and ignorant. I, I was defying God, disobeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, doing my own thing. We were enemies of the God of heaven. We didn't want God's grace because we didn't believe we needed God's grace because we either thought we couldn't get it or we were good enough or whatever it was, and yet God rescued us. So we don't, we don't speak the gospel in a condescending way, as if we're better or smarter. We should not look 
at the unbelieving world in a condescending way. Yes, we're, we're appalled sometimes by the evil and the wickedness that we see, but it, it, it shouldn't shock us because this is Paul saying, I was there. I, I know what that's like to fight against God. We are coming as people who once were lost in darkness and by God's grace have been rescued. We are those people who kicked against God, who kicked against his, his drawing and his, his grace in calling us. And, and so may God help us to mercifully identify with the lost as Paul does here. Second thing I, I think that we get out of this is we also have an opportunity to assure people of God's power to save. If you ever talk to anyone who, who even in listening to the gospel seemed to feel like they were beyond God's care, God's reach, had, had spent a life in, in some kind of sin, vile ways, they had drinking or drugs or whatever, felt like they just destroyed their life. And, and just as you're speaking a gospel of hope and peace and forgiveness, all they can think about is how could God possibly care for me? How could he love someone like me? And, and they are just mired in this unbelief. Part of Paul's message here is to say, Look at me. God rescued me. Paul's assuring them that anyone can repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring salvation to a guy who was proud of murdering, overseeing at least, the murder of Jesus' followers. Jesus comes and saves this one who is actively involved in persecuting this small group of people who are followers of Jesus Christ, and he is doing so with this raging fury. Jesus saves thieves and liars and jailers and persecutors. He is, he is mighty to save. The, the thing is, by his own admission, Paul is very clear to us that on the road to Damascus, he was not seeking Jesus. He did not set out on a road to say, I I think I figured this out and I've got to find Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus with the orders of the chief priests to go and arrest more people. And in the middle of another angry mission to go and terrorize the church of Jesus Christ, in the midst of that, Jesus comes to Paul to rescue Paul. This is the grace of God. And it should be this wonderful assurance to us and a strong word to doubters and to skeptics that Jesus Christ is eager to save you. That when we speak this gospel of Jesus Christ, we are talking about a real grace that longs to save sinners. Even if you've spent your life turning your back on Jesus Christ, even if you feel like, how could, how could Jesus possibly embrace me now? He is eager to save if you will turn around and believe in him and be saved. The call of the gospel stands to you today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not too late your sin is not so great. Paul goes on. He's describing again this confrontation on the road with Jesus. Verse 14, again, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Drop down then to verse 22, and, and this is Paul now responding to this commission from Jesus. We'll come back to the other verses, but look at verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Stop there. Identifying with those who are sinners, we understand, we've been there, assuring them that Jesus saves. Third thing is testify about Jesus. The heart of our gospel proclamation must be the proclamation of Jesus. This, this is the part where the, the Jewish opponents are now, again, if there's any in the room, they are seething against Paul once again. This is the part where Agrippa and Festus are, accused, are, are, are confused by, by what Paul is saying because Paul now brings the whole matter back to Jesus of Nazareth. And they all knew Herod Agrippa certainly knew, he understood the, the Jewish history, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man who had been beaten in Jerusalem, who had been run through a, a mock trial, who had been nailed to a cross, and who had been buried, and then there were these rumors about him. Paul is plainly saying, I saw Jesus after his death. He appeared to me, risen, alive. He is Lord, he is Savior, he is risen. Paul not only testifies to the the truth about Christ's resurrection, but he, he makes the point here when he says that I, what I proclaimed was consistent with the Old Testament. I, I, I simply described everything that the Old Testament law that Moses and the prophets had foretold, that the, the Jewish Savior must come and must give his life as a ransom for sinners, and that he would die, and that he would rise again, and that would bring forgiveness of sins, that the Savior had to die to break the power of Satan. And then he became the first to rise from the grave. Jesus' commission to Paul in, in verse 16, essentially, is tell people everything about me. Witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Jesus is saying, speak to them about me. Without the gospel, there is no forgiveness. Without the message of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There is no good news. How Jesus lived and died and rose must be our proclamation. And that's what Paul did. He said, I testify to both great and small. I stand here before you, king, and I have preached throughout the Roman Empire to people in synagogues and all over the place to the most ordinary of people. I have preached Christ. We must testify to the truth and power of Christ that he is the Savior and that he is risen. Now I'll go back. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Pause there. Here's the fourth thing Paul does, is he urges them to respond. Gospel proclamation also tells people, this is what God's calling you to do. This is how you should respond. And Paul says, I, I got the commission from Jesus, and I went and preached Christ, and then I told them, you must repent and believe. You must turn from your sin. You are, you are separated from your creator. You are hostile to him, and you need to be made right with him. 
And you can only do that by turning from your sin and putting your full trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, he says here, repentance, real repentance, will bear fruit. Because he's, as, as he preaches this, he, he goes on to say that this repentance then demonstrates itself in, in their turning and, and the fruit that is evident. This is the same thing that um, John the Baptist says when he is preaching repentance and he is baptizing back in Luke chapter 3. And they come to him and they say, we want this baptism. And he says, well, now go and bear fruit unto repentance. Go and live differently. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some intellectual philosophical sort of theory that's worth knowing alongside of others, it is transforming. And so he, he says this, that the, the proclamation is to repent. He urges them to turn, to be different, to now follow Christ. The moral and ethical pattern of the life of a believer is new. It is not perfect, but it is different. A new creature in Christ cannot live as if nothing's changed because we know everything's changed by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done. He has made us new creatures, and Paul urges them to repent and believe. All right, let's read on. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, here's the governor, interjects with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprison, uh, imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Festus's response. You're out of your mind, Paul. That, that is rooted in the heart of a guy who has lived for himself. He has lived for political gain. He has lived to climb the ladder and, and to be successful. And you can only imagine what's going through his mind as he is logically, from a distorted, sinful perspective, watching and listening to Paul. This guy who, as he says, is, is learned. This is not some, some lunatic who's just sort of going off here. This is a learned eloquent man who is speaking truth, and, and Festus is looking at him almost with sympathy. This poor guy who is in chains, who has nothing left, who takes all of these dangerous, crazy trips all over the empire to preach about Jesus, and, and as Festus is looking at him now in Festus's worldview, this guy's got zero. I mean, he stands here in chains, and he's got nothing. There's nobody here for him. He's got no riches. He's got no fame. He couldn't even, didn't even have enough friends to come and bribe the previous governor to, to get him released. And now as Festus is listening, he's realizing what he didn't fully understand before is that Paul's message is about some rabbi from Nazareth of all places who lived like 20 years ago who was executed by the Roman governor. And Festus is sitting there thinking, this is crazy. 
why would, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone chuck their life like this? And that's why he says, this is madness. Who spends their life preaching about a disgraced nobody from Nazareth and claiming that he is risen from the dead? Paul, you've just, you've crossed over here and, and you're just insane. Paul pushes back on Festus and says, no, that's, that's not in fact I can tell you that Agrippa is sitting here struggling with these things because he's got enough knowledge of, of Jewish law and custom and the things that I'm saying that he's not thinking that I'm crazy. In fact, he said I, he, he almost dares Agrippa at this point about this. He pushes back and he turns to Agrippa. And Agrippa sort of brushes it off in verse 28 and, and is almost, you get the sense, astonished that, that, that Paul would dare to say, Agrippa, I, I think you're wrestling with these things. I think you might believe some of this. And Agrippa's like, Paul, do you, you think in this short time that I could be persuaded? You're going to make me into a Christian with this kind of short message? Paul's response in verse 29 is the one I just want you to focus in on. Whether short or long, whether I speak a short time or long time, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Here's the fifth element of, of gospel proclamation. It's to pray. When Paul says, I would to God, the Greek verb there for I would to God is the common one for pray. So you could just as easily translate this, Agrippa, I pray to God that everyone listening to me would come to be as I am, would come to believe in Jesus Christ. They can do without these chains that I have, but I am praying that everyone who hears this gospel would repent and believe in Jesus. This is, the, this is the, the ultimate appeal by Paul. It is not about his eloquence. It is not about his arguing or persuasiveness. Ultimately, Paul knows that when it comes to that final moment of what goes on in Agrippa's heart and whether or not he responds, this is where the work of God must take place. We be faithful, we urge, we identify, we assure Christ can save, we preach Christ, we proclaim Christ, but in the end, we pray and pray and pray that God would save. Paul is, is, is just pleading that God would open Agrippa's eyes and Festus and Bernice and all in that room, that they would come to believe. We should plead to God with urgency and desperation. Because our proclamation is, is just that. It is empowered proclamation. The work that goes on in the heart is the same thing that happens to Paul on the road to Damascus when this hardened sinner suddenly is confronted by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and is even saying, who are you? And Jesus says, I, I'm the one that you're, you're persecuting, Paul. And Paul is gloriously saved by the power of Jesus Christ. There's no record in Acts, but... But, but it's hard not to imagine that the early church wasn't praying for guys just like that, the, the persecutors, that, that God would just grab them and save them and change them. Just as Paul is praying, God, take this king and turn his heart. We need to pray. And then finally, we must rest. Paul is headed to Rome. As far as we know, as far as church history goes, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, we have no conversion stories that, that we're aware of. They all stayed in their sin. But Paul is able to pray for them, having proclaimed the truth to them, and he is now able to fix his eyes on Rome 
and on what God sets before him next, and he is able to continue to proclaim Christ and trust God to save. Amidst all that happened, the injustice, the imprisonment, the politics, the mistreatment, Paul's life being used as a pawn through it all, Paul is still able to rest in the sovereign grace of God. I am here because of God's purposes for God's will. And we know that because years later in Chains in Rome, when Paul writes back to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. After all that he has endured and all of the people who have rejected the gospel and who have used Paul and, and been unjust to Paul, Paul is able to say to Timothy, not in a bitter way, not in a, boy, this was a waste of time. Timothy, the, the best thing you can do is to use your life as a workman and, and, and proclaim the truth. Just be faithful to the gospel and rest in that. Later in that same letter, and we'll end here in 2 Timothy 4, Paul wrote, for I'm already, this is, he's now in prison in Rome, writing back, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He had been called crazy. He had been left in prison. He had been mistreated and mocked. And yet when all is said and done, Paul says, I just, I just want to find my hope and my peace in saying I fought the good fight. I have kept faith with the gospel and with God and his word, and I can rest in that regardless of the outcome. I can rest there. May we boldly proclaim Christ, crucified and risen, and by his empowered proclamation through us, see God build his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the speaking forth of your word and how it constantly gives testimony to who you are, to the power of the gospel to save. Each time we've seen this account in Acts, it, it's tempting to, to become redundant, and yet each time what it reminds us of is the amazing grace and power of Jesus Christ to come to one who is an avowed opponent, one who is raging with anger, who wants with all his heart to believe that Jesus is dead, body stolen, hidden somewhere, and that there is no gospel, there is no risen Savior, and will persecute anyone who speaks that. And in the midst of that, your grace floods over him. And turns him into a servant who will stand before kings and proclaim with boldness that Jesus saves, that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that if you will repent and believe Agrippa, Festus, those who are in power in our country, in all different levels, those who are in power at our workplaces, those who surround us, if you will but repent and believe in Jesus. He is strong to save. Lord, may you equip us this week to humbly identify with those around us who are lost, not 
looking down on them bitterly and angrily, but knowing that they are in darkness and holding out to them the light. May you give power to our speaking. And may you be pleased to rescue people from darkness and sin and shame and bring them to the light and forgiveness of Christ. Cause us to live in such a way that we might be able to stand alongside ancestors like Paul and say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And now I look forward to what awaits me in glory before my King. It is in the name of the risen and coming Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.